0: I hope you will support this podcast by purchasing a copy of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic Cover-Up, a bestseller at Amazon at cfsbook.com. That's cfs is in Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Book.com. You can also find all of my books at CharlesOrtlib.com. That's Charles O R T L E B.com. I'm very honored that my first guest on this inaugural program is Hillary Johnson, a journalist who has written about medical topics for three decades. During her fascinating career, she has explored the introduction of antiretroviral cocktails and AIDS, the use of depleted uranium weapons by the United States in the Gulf Wars, public health threats posed by the ever-mutating influenza virus, viral causes of multiple sclerosis, air pollution-induced mortality, and health effects of the notorious toxic waste site Love Canal. Her most in-depth reporting has been about U.S. biomedical research gone awry in the case of myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Rolling Stone editor-in-chief Robert Wallace assigned Johnson to write about the emerging ME-CFS epidemic in the summer of 1987. The result, a two-part series called Journey into Fear, was the topic of an ABC Nightline segment soon after its publication. Rolling Stone received more reader mail than at any time in its history. The series was a finalist in the prestigious reporting category at the National Magazine Awards of 1988. In October of 1987, Edward P. Evans, then chairman of Macmillan, Inc., who had the illness himself, invited Johnson to write a book about the malady. Soon after, Evans retired and Johnson moved her book to Crown, a division of Random House. After almost 10 years of investigative reporting and dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests to United States health agencies, Osler's Web was published in 1996. More than 1,000 pages had been cut from the original manuscript, leaving a 1,200-page manuscript and ultimately a 726-page book. Johnson's book received an award from the Alison Hunter Memorial Foundation, an Australian advocacy organization created by Christine Hunter and named in honor of her teenage daughter who died of the illness. If you think people don't die of MECFS, you may have to revise your thinking. Johnson attended the Northfield School for Girls in Massachusetts and received degrees in journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She was a news reporter at the Minneapolis Tribune and Congressional Quarterly in Washington, D.C. In New York, Johnson worked as a business and feature writer for Women's Wear Daily and W, and later as a news reporter for Life Magazine. In 1982, she became an independent contractor and wrote for numerous national publications, including Rolling Stone, the Christian Science Monitor, the Columbia Journalism Review, the Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Town and Country, and Vanity Fair. She had just turned down an offer to become a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and was making plans to go to Rwanda to conduct research for a book about Diane Fossey's murder when she fell ill in Los Angeles on March 8, 1986. The publication of Osler's Web was both a literary event and a rare example of immersive journalism, the result of shoe leather reporting undertaken by journalist Hillary Johnson over a period of a decade. Reviewers called Osler's Web a watershed in the history of a worldwide outbreak of myalgic encephalomyelitis that began in earnest in the early 1980s. Johnson's series of intertwined narratives was a wholly original story that peeled back layer upon layer of misdeeds, unethical behavior, remarkable bias, and incompetence at the highest levels of the American medical establishment. It remains the only book to chronicle in full the American government's failed response to the emergence of the myalgic encephalomyelitis epidemic, which arose concurrently with AIDS. Then and today, anyone seeking to understand the reasons this illness has been denigrated, mischaracterized, covered up, and to this day remains unresolved, will find the why in Osler's web. Hillary Johnson's intensive effort involved fashioning a complex series of unrelated events and interviews conducted with several hundred people into a compelling story. Reviewers commented on the book's cinematic quality, suggesting it read like a Hollywood melodrama, and they took note of the richly drawn characters, often characterizing them as heroes and villains. Johnson's book remains the only comprehensive narrative of the era and is regarded as the definitive political and scientific history of the epidemic. Osler's Web invited readers into the then-often shabby offices and laboratories of the late 1980s Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Rather than adhering to their agency's mandate to prevent the spread of the illness, the Atlanta bureaucrats struggled to dampen public alarm. Privately, they pondered administering humiliating psychological tests to the patients. Meanwhile, the disease was spreading exponentially. One of the earliest and most unbelievable prevalence estimates by the CDC in the late 1980s was a mere 20,000 people. By 2006, CDC had raised its estimate to as many as 1 million Americans. A Harvard study proposed the prevalence was 2 million. Eight years later, the Institute of Medicine proposed that 2.5 million Americans were suffering, though other estimates nearly double that figure. Unfortunately, reliable epidemiology is in short supply, and where the CDC is concerned, the word epidemiology should always be in quotes. In a worst-case scenario, one the public health service won't publicly entertain, several million seemingly healthy people could be carrying a pathogen causing the illness and are thus capable of transmitting a disease that one writer has called the closest thing to an off switch on life. In other words, the CDC has created a huge public health mess that we are still digging our way out of today. In other words, yikes. Johnson's book evoked the frat boy atmosphere, the overwhelming contempt for sufferers, and ultimately the betrayal of the public trust that characterized staff at the Centers for Disease Control during those years. But there was more. Johnson followed the money. Upon its publication in April 1996, Hillary Johnson's Osler's Web broke the story of the CDC's theft of approximately $150 million taxpayer dollars, money a concerned Congress sent to the agency to conduct MECFS cfs research beginning in 1988. Her book revealed that agency heads had lied repeatedly to Congress about CDC's progress in the disease in order to keep taxpayer money flowing into CDC coffers for middle-level staffers to use on anything but MECFS. cfs In Atlanta, far from the halls of Congress, agency insiders called the MECFS slush fund the goose that laid the golden egg. Johnson delineated how agency staff colluded from the lowest to the highest levels of the agency to accomplish their crimes and revealed how the money had been misspent. After reading Osler's web in April 1996, an alarmed Congressman Gerald Nadler called for investigations of the allegations in her book by the Department of Health and Human Services and the General Accounting Office. Two federal investigations ensued, each of which confirmed the facts presented in Osler's Web. In her book, Johnson presented a novelistic-like insider's account of the agency's tardy decision to investigate an ME outbreak in the ski resort hamlet of Incline Village, Nevada, as well as a blow-by-blow description of the local investigation itself, a shocking tale untold in any other venue until Osler's Web. Osler's Web also unearthed the secret motivations behind the agency's critical 1988 decision to create the silly misnomer chronic fatigue syndrome for a malady that CDC scientists by then recognized as myalgic encephalomyelitis. The book provides revealing excerpts from never-before-seen correspondence exchange over one year by participants in this ridiculous and shameful decision. As outlined in Osler's web, this group debated the political and financial implications of giving the disease a medical name and opted against that choice for reasons having nothing to do with medicine and everything to do with political expediency. Sound familiar? Their decision had devastating consequences for public health for decades to come. In her book, Johnson introduced several indelible characters onto the world stage most notably clinicians Paul Cheney and Daniel Peterson of Incline Village, Nevada. Osler's Webb also introduced Stephen Strauss, the National Institutes of Health clinical investigator. Book reviewers uniformly identified Strauss, who was admired among his own colleagues at the NIH as the villain of Johnson's story, as opposed to the heroes like Cheney and Peterson. One reviewer noted that Strauss reminded her of Hannah Arendt's comment about the banality of evil. Johnson provided detailed evidence of the ways Strauss shaped federal policy towards the illness over a period of 15 years and misled an easily swayed generation of scientists, doctors, and journalists about the true nature of the epidemic. Think scientists and journalists aren't gullible? Think again. Osler's web unmasked Strauss's near single-handed responsibility for inhibiting the discovery process for at least one human generation. As Philip Hildes, writing in the New York Times, noted in his review of Osler's Web, none of these remarkable episodes in American medical history would be known today or available to future generations had not Johnson researched and written Osler's Web. Indeed, her book may be more relevant today to patients, scientists, medical historians, and ethicists than it was upon its publication in 1996, given the exponential expansion of the universe of ME-CFS sufferers and the fast receding memories of the pivotal policy setting years Johnson described in Osler's Web. In 35 chapters spanning 1984 to 1994, Osler's Web takes readers on a wild ride through late 20th century science and medicine, unveiling the dark interior of a belligerent American government unwilling to investigate a public health emergency. Citizens afflicted with the disease were abandoned by medicine and the larger culture, leading to human rights violations reminiscent of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but on a vastly larger scale. Government gaslighted sufferers with pervasive assurances that they were not physically ill while observing the natural history of a virulent disease unfold in real time without making any efforts to prevent its spread or ameliorate its life-robbing symptoms. Crafted by a master journalist, Osler's Web continues to stand today as the most reliable and comprehensive history of a public health crisis of enormous magnitude, one that has yet to be addressed appropriately by the United States or any other government. When Hillary Johnson's Rolling Stone articles came out in 1987, I had a eureka moment because they confirmed something I had been suspecting for some time. As the publisher and editor-in-chief of New York Native, I had been overseeing the paper's reporting on AIDS for six wild years at that point. While our coverage of AIDS for the first couple of years had been trusting and respectful of the CDC, it had evolved into reporting that was investigative and more skeptical of the veracity of the scientists who were at the helm of the country's research efforts, while the rest of the media remained the CDC's patsies and stenographers, we were asking hard questions. Slowly but surely, it was sinking in that the epidemiology and science of AIDS were shaped more by politics than a commitment to telling the truth. I was lucky to have my own deep throat inside the CDC director's office, who was filling me in on what was really going on behind the scenes. A year before Hillary Johnson's Rolling Stone pieces on March 25, 1986, Ben Stein wrote a piece in the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and one of our readers graciously sent it to me. It was a real eye opener. Oh, and yes, it is that Ben Stein, the guy with the deadpan voice from Fox News and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Stein wrote that it seemed to him that everyone in Los Angeles seemed to be sick all the time. People would develop a flu that lasted two weeks, and then they would recover, but then a few weeks later, they would get sick again. He described a vague, spaced-out feeling, chronic fatigue just over your shoulder, always breathing down on you. A susceptibility to wild upsets of the bowels all became part of your daily life. Stein complained that even though an incurable flu seemed to be spreading throughout Los Angeles, no one was doing anything about it. He also wrote quote, Already, my friends in the East tell me the nonstop flu has hit Washington and New York in a big way. This nation can be genuinely disabled by these incurable diseases. The individuals who have them are severely pained physically and psychically. Having the flu half your life hurts, take it from me. Can anyone help? Isn't this worthy of national attention? Are we just going to have the stock market go up forever while everyone gets incurable viruses? I'm scared, end quote. I started to sense that what we call AIDS was just the tip of an iceberg and the epidemic that Stein was describing was probably the bottom of that iceberg. Then, when I read Hillary Johnson's pieces in Rolling Stone in 1987, I felt like we were really getting an even better and more detailed picture of the bottom of that iceberg. Anyone who knows how I operated in those days won't be surprised that I got on the phone and didn't stop until I tracked Hillary Johnson down in Los Angeles. Well, long story short, we have been talking about this unresolved issue for 30 years now. How crazy is that? Our usual phone conversations last for a minimum of three hours, but we have a limited amount of time, so I'd like to discuss a few things with Hillary Johnson that she has rarely discussed in the media. Hillary Johnson, welcome to my first show. Thank you. So, as Rachel Maddow would say, is there anything in my introduction you want to correct?
1: Uh, well, one thing. Uh, I'm super flattered by your thorough introduction, by the way, and there's really nothing to correct, but I, I did want to add one thing. At the time I was asked by the editor of Rolling Stone to write about this disease, I had been a contributing editor to the magazine for about three or four years, so had, uh, so during the first several months that I was ill, bob wallace had called me on practically weekly occasions to assign me articles and i'd always had to tell him no i was afraid to tell him how sick i really was i was afraid of being written off of ruining a very good source of income and at that point i had no idea that my career was ultimately going to be decimated over time anyway but uh one day, a friend brought me an edition of the LA Times that had a story in it about an unusual outbreak of disease in the mountain resort community of Incline Village, Nevada. Okay. The reporter had interviewed the doctors there um, and noted that the CDC had come to investigate and essentially found nothing. That really piqued my interest In addition, the symptoms being described were exactly what I was experiencing. So I remember telling Bob Wallace about this outbreak and how common this illness already was in Los Angeles. And his suggestion was something to the effect of, well, since you keep turning down my ideas, why don't you write about this? You're clearly very interested in it. And so that was the beginning, and with some difficulty, I did go to incline. I got an incredible scientific tutorial in the disease from a brilliant doctor there named Paul Cheney, at which point I began to realize how shocking and potentially huge the story was. And I just lastly would say it's an even bigger story today, because for 30 years, the government has sought to bury it by calling it sufferers malingerers, hysterics, or genetically inferior, or type A's, anything they can come up with. They've refused to conduct research or epidemiology on it. And now, as you know, millions are sick, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And a generation of Americans have lost their lives.
0: Uh, Something I've been dying to talk to you about to you about is what happened in 1996 when your book was published and you went on your book tour. I remember being very excited about your book coming out. I also thought the entire community of CFS scientists and CFS patients would be thrilled that you were finally telling the world their story, but it turned out that things didn't go as planned. Could you sum up what happened when your book came out?
1: Yes, that's a terrific question, and As background, uh, I'll note that probably every page of Osler's Web, um, on every page uh, of that book, either directly stated by a scientist, doctor, researcher, uh, or else implied in the content, was that the CDC had named uh, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome in 1988 And today, of course, as you know, it's called myaltic encephalomyelitis, or ME. At any rate, on every page, there was evidence of some kind that this disease, whatever you want to call it, appeared to be contagious. So the disease was occurring in the 1980s, not just in obvious, well-documented clusters, but it was clearly spreading all over the country. And, in fact, it turned out that the biggest risk factor suggested that the more intimate contact you had with someone who was sick, the more likely you were to contract the disease. Multiple family members were sick. People who shared workplaces fell ill. Many patients who had spent time in hospitals, where, as we know, there are a ton of infectious agents floating around, they fell ill. People who worked in jobs that involved a lot of interaction with the public were falling ill at high rates. That would include nurses, doctors, teachers, and frighteningly airline personnel. Patients who had a blood transfusion were coming down with this disease. In one case I read about, and this case was actually actually litigated and settled out of court, um, a healthy nurse who accidentally stuck herself with a needle, she had just used to draw blood from a patient, became 100% disabled within three months. So frankly, this turned out to be an intolerable message to patients and to the government, and most certainly to the largest national organization for patients, uh, which was called the CFIDs Association of America, or CAA. By 1996, when the book was published, CAA had really become part of the government by accepting contracts from CDC to literally brand the name chronic fatigue syndrome into the public's subconscious or conscious. It's pretty obvious that with a name like chronic fatigue syndrome, no one is going to think there's a public health concern and certainly not something that could be spread from person to person. So that's the background to this story. Um, Osler's Web, as I mentioned, ran counter to this idea that there was no infection. In fact, it was the major vehicle by which the, that message of cont- of contagiousness was communicated at the time. And it turned out that issue was the third rail of the disease. As far as the patient organization of the day was concerned, the focus became kill the book, and even kill the messenger. And CAA mounted an assault on this book on several fronts. When I made an appearance on Good Morning America and first talked about the issue of infectiousness, someone from CAA called my publisher crown and managed to extract from a newly hired secretary who should have known better my book tour schedule. Now, this schedule listed every radio and TV interview, every newspaper interview that I would be doing in the next nine days in eight cities, and they asked a former researcher from the National Cancer Institute to preempt via telephone, certainly every radio interview I was to do in particular by proposing a debate with me on whether or not the disease was infectious. Now I didn't mind discussing that issue, but there were also a slew of other very important topics that needed airing from this book, like the fact that NIH had refused to fund the disease for by then a decade, the fact that their lone scientist on this disease was lying in grand rounds to doctors, that there had even that there was even that there was zero evidence for disease in Incline Village, though he never produced a sliver of data to back that claim up. Uh, there was also the fact that the CDC had literally stolen at least $150 million sent to them by Congress to research the disease and had siphoned 100% of that money off to use as they pleased. Uh, projects involving uh, beefing up their labs, buying office furniture. I mean, this was also incredibly important information to know. I'd spent nine years digging it up and verifying it beyond any doubt, but I was unable to talk about these events because I was repeatedly derailed on my book tour by this retired NIH scientist. He, in effect, became my personal truth squad, essentially ruining a multitude of opportunities I'd been afforded by my publisher to discuss in any depth the contents of the book And interestingly, although officially his job at NIH had been cancer epidemiology, he had frequently told me that he considered part of his job to prevent public panic. I think most taxpayers, including yourself, would understand that his job was to be conducting scientific research. But from my perspective, he was engaging in public pro- propaganda and fear mongering. He would ask me things like, Do you want to round up everyone and put them in concentration camps? And, you know, it was just silly. He was the one creating a panic, so, or trying to. You, the you patient, or I'm you must, sorry. We, you must have yes. been
0: in a state of shock. I mean, this is not what you expected, I assume. I mean, at that moment. You, you were you were doing you were doing God's work for this community and suddenly the scientists and the patients who originally supported you ended up were betraying you and the truth about the epidemic I mean
1: <laughs> yes it was it was really shocking uh, it was uh, you know killed the messenger killed the message and uh, there was just you know you uh, no rhyme or reason, really, at the time. Except, you know, with with, you know, except that I realized that to speak of contagion was the worst. Uh, it was the uh, worst thing I could have possibly done. Bottom line. And I'll just add to this unsavory story, which there are some other details I, I didn't I didn't speak of, but I'll just add that. Oslo's Web was very well received by professional book reviewers, and it was reviewed in virtually every major newspaper in this country and in Canada. My own publisher, Crown, turned to me for an explanation. They were bewildered that an organization representing patients would be anything less than thrilled to have a spotlight turned on the disease. This book not just chronicled patients' misery, but it informed patients about the government's misdeeds and dissembling around this disease. And to have that exposed to the world, uh, you know, you'd think that they would be pleased. And I really had no answers for Crown at the time. I still think that even 20 years on, the book does hand to the patient community on a silver platter all they need to loss. To, to launch an enormous class action lawsuit against the Department of Health and Human Services. And just lastly, I'll add that your own New York native CFS reporter, Nina Ostrom, wrote an excellent book about this series of, ev- of events when they occur, uh, occurred back in 1996, and I'm glad because she she created an objective record of these events. And that article is available on my website. It's quite comprehensive and really lays out the hypocrisy involved in this episode.
0: Would you, would you say that we're at a point in time in which both the CDC and the MECFS establishment, as well as the patients, still don't want to admit that the illness is contagious, one epidemic caused by a single agent?
1: You know, I I think, yes, certainly, and I think more so than in earlier decades, in the 80s, most scientists were really quite interested in answering the question, what is the cause? What's the pathogen? Unfortunately, after 30 years of zero grant support and actual career-destroying antagonism from the U.S. government, scientists are beaten down, and... uh, you know you might say that only the uh, well uh, one scientist is quoted in my book as saying that academia uh, promotes mediocrity uh that's not always the case. There have been some great academic scientists who've attempted to do research in this in this field and have been uh shot down by the government but In general, the reality is that scientists are desperate to be funded by the NIH to study this disease more thoroughly, but they must toe the NIH line about this disease. They feel they must be very careful about what they say publicly and in their grant proposals. They don't talk about this disease in terms of finding the pathogen. They talk about mechanisms of pathophysiology. And... I'll address the issue of patients in a minute, but first, I think what you've focused on for years, the virus, HHV-6, continues to be a strong candidate for the cause of ME. And certainly you are greatly more educated on this than I am, but as you're currently aware, many scientists believe that HHV-6 is the cofactor required for progression of AIDS. What's interesting is that most ME, if not all ME, begins with an infection as well, often very specific, such as influenza or a bad cold or some obscure disease caught while on vacation in, say, Africa, Asia, or something local like a stomach flu or giardia or herpes simplex. These unfortunates go on to to, uh, develop ME. And this suggests that ME, like HIV or like AIDS, uh, requires a cofactor that may already be present. Um, Hillary, and the idea- sh- Hillary, I'm you sorry.
0: A, you said a very bad word. You're not supposed to say the word AIDS when you talk about chronic fatigue syndrome. The patients do not like that word. That, at least that's my experience. Um,
1: uh, yes, you're. you're <laughs> You're, you're quite correct. I mean, it seems to me uh, the,
0: patients, the patients have gotten so involved with the disease online, doesn't it seem like there's a belief that they can decide what the cause is, that they can vote on it and call it anything they don't, and anything they don't like they can call fake science? I mean, isn't that the situation we're in right now?
1: Well, um, certainly the idea that ME and AIDS, although, They emerge simultaneously, which is something people conveniently either don't talk about or have forgotten. They share an amazing number of similarities, both in terms of symptoms and biological abnormalities. And the fact that they could somehow be related seems to recede further with every decade. And these two maladies were bifurcated so abruptly, and one You know, ME, so to speak, was called hysteria and sent to the back of the bus, and the other disease, AIDS, became the hottest research focus in medicine for three decades and had billions of dollars lavished on it, and I think these facts, at a minimum, are quite disturbing. Um, Yes, patients are very antagonistic toward the idea they have an infectious disease, Uh, they Certainly don't want to suffer the fate that AIDS patients suffered in the 80s. Uh, and again, I, I certainly admit uh, and agree with you that there, there is a there's a very murky uh, line in terms of symptomatology uh, and biological abnormalities between these two diseases.
0: Uh, would you would you say that line is? a bit political? Uh,
1: Potentially. Potentially. I I think everything surrounding these two illnesses has been highly politicized from the start. From the start. And uh, to go back to the infectious question for a minute, uh, if you will, I I think patients and everyone else really need to understand this is a society wide problem it's not exclusively the problem of sufferers it affects the entire culture the economies of nations it's not solely the problem of patients who are admittedly exceedingly unfortunate to be forced to bear the burden alone they've suffered greatly and they've needed help for years and that help has not been forth- forthcoming. You know, Hillary, but, um, there, yes.
0: there, there have been some recent documentaries trying to raise awareness uh, about the epidemic. Um, and it just seems to me that, in general, they focus too much on the suffering and not enough on getting to the bottom of the incompetence and malfeasance of the CDC. H- how
1: do you? Oh, I so yes, I so agree with you, Chuck. Uh, absolutely. And... I've always argued, and I think you have as well, that the endless—and I mean from the mid 1980s nine eight on—focus the the, the the endless focus on individual patients telling their stories of suffering and abuse. This is a ma- a failed media strategy. You know, I I hate to say it, the horrible truth is that nobody really cares. You see these articles in the newspaper. Every day from all over the world, people read them like they would read a short Stephen King story and then they just move on. There's no strategy, no call to action. It's just another sad story. People are obsessed with making the non-ill understand how horrible this illness is, but that's not a strategy. And in these documentaries in particular, there's a, a kind of diva mentality. You know, look at me, hear my story, feel my pain. But all the stories are alike with perhaps minor differences. Uh, Then there's the Laura Hillenbrand phenomenon. Uh, She's an extremely famous person and accomplished, and I give her all kudos. But whenever she does interviews, which generally have been coordinated to uh, a new book, or a new movie drop. She will talk about the disease at length, but you would never know anyone else had it other than Laura Hillenbrand. She seems completely innocent of the political history and the government's failures. It's as if, uh, you know, now if if she doesn't want to talk about those issues, that's her business. But at least take the opportunity when you have this huge audience listening every word you're saying, at least peop- at least, let people know that Laura Hillenbrand isn't the only person with ME, and please stop saying it's made you a better writer or that you're glad you had to endure it for whatever reasons. Even if she really believes that, she's creating a kind of special hell for everyone who has this disease and just doesn't happen to be writing multi-million dollar bestse- bestseller historical fiction.
0: You know, your book has been described as being very cinematic, which raises the question of why the book hasn't been made into a movie, and I do hope Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon are listening.
1: <laughs> I hope so, too. Um, first, I would say never say never. Uh, it, it hasn't been made into a movie yet. I still you sort of hope that someday it might be, but I, I think one reason is that uh, Initially, I, a reason for that is that I, I didn't write it in the first person. So there are multiple heroes, yet there's no single hero. It's not the story of one young journalist's struggle to dig up the truth and her adventures along the way. It certainly would have been simpler to write. I, I, I really felt that would be rather self-indulgent, and, and I, you know, uh, I did end up Uh, I can't think of the word uh, typical of this disease Um, let's say I subjugated myself to the story itself I felt putting myself in the book would end up obscuring the, the importance of the story the story was so much bigger than I was there are other reasons too it's difficult for citizens to believe that such terrible things could occur at the nation's health agency it just runs counter to everything Americans believe. All the president's men worked because people were willing to believe anything of Richard Nixon. But I think the CDC is still rated as the most trustworthy government agency in the country. And lastly, there really has been no happy conclusion, no bow to tie up the saga. Now, I will add that there have been a lot of documentaries out there that actually are based on the narrative that I created in Osler's Web, but they do not credit Osler's Web. Documentaries uh, can end up with unanswered questions, however, unlike books or movies. They don't need to clean up the plot at the end.
0: Speaking of unanswered questions, uh, like you, I was involved back in the 90s in trying to get Congressman Nadler to take up this cause. And he did some good work, but he kind of dropped the ball. Is there any politician who has made this their cause since?
1: I have to say that I can't think of any. I I Certainly, it it would be uh, a great omission if I did not say that patients are organizing, they're making trips, to congress they're talking to congress people and to senators but unfortunately no one has really done the kind of aggressive things that our hero gerald nadler did he was you know in fact i I, I think it was you probably who brought nadler's attention to authors web for which you know, I certainly thank you. and he was able to get two, uh, con- uh, two congressional uh, investigations started with the General Accounting Office and the Department of Health and Human Services, both of which supported every, every allegation I made in Oslo's web. And uh, we need and Gerald Nadler today, and as yet, I don't think we have one.
0: Do you think the community fully understands the importance of getting a politician to carry the torch? I mean, it would only take one who constantly spoke out. I mean, if all the pa- if all the patients just focused on one senator or, or one congressman and they all wrote to him or her and begged them, you know, to make this their cause, don't you think that would help a lot?
1: Yes, I I, I do. I I think that you know that's one of those wonderful ideas i worry uh... whether it's it's going to be shared by everyone uh... the patients the advocates who go to congress they typically just kind of move from congressional office to congressional office i'm sure there are there is some strategy as to you know why they're picking the people they are picking you know, it, it, they're certainly going to their own representatives and so on, but uh, there, there's been no targeting of specific politicians, and I, I think that there should be more of that, certainly. And if there were, it's it's possible, and in fact even likely, that uh, a, a very strong hero would emerge. I think certainly this issue is so huge that... It, if even one us senator took it up as their primary cause they would have uh, work to do from you know first thing in the morning till late in the evening it's bigger than just one senator as you know
0: yes hillary now you have a brand new website at osersweb.com that i've looked at and i have to say it's one of the coolest and best designed sites i've seen in years if people go there and they subscribe uh, to your to your newsletter or your your blog, or you call it iView, I believe, and and, the, and they see a lot of writing and important breaking news, what can they expect to see in the future on Osler's com?
1: Well, more of the same, I hope. Uh, you know, I've never really stopped covering this disease. I've been reporting and writing about it since 1987. I expect to do so using web.com as my vehicle. and I have so many plans, so many ideas for what I want to do. I so far, I’ve covered subjects like whether NIH Director Francis Collins is really going to make any difference to patients with this disease. I’ve covered current research. I've done a series of interviews, for instance, one of them has been with a Stanford clinical expert named Jose Montoya, a fascinating doctor with a number of important ideas. I've also interviewed Carol Head, who is president of the patient organization that's the successor to the old patient organization I described at the top of your show, and my interest stemmed from the fact that Carol Head was so different and so progressive. I, I do have high hopes for her. I'll also have archived on this website historical material uh, and audio and visual interviews I've done, a lot of fun stuff that people have likely never seen. And, you know, I continue to, uh, my plans are to continue to report aggressively on this disease, to ask hard questions, tough questions. I've never backed off. I've always asked the, the kinds of questions that I think need to be asked. And I continue to hope that I will and plan to do more of the same.
0: Hillary, we're out of time, but I want to wish you the best of luck with Oslersweb.com, And I hope you will come back often to talk about breaking news on this still vitally important story.
1: Thank you, Chuck. And thank you for your ex- excellent questions and the opportunity.
0: I hope that this interview has made everyone more curious about Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and the uncanny fact that it broke out at the same time as AIDS and has many of the same symptoms and immunological problems. Many people have compared Osler's Web to the bestseller and The Band Played On by Randy Schultz. If you read Osler's Web and Randy Schultz's book and The Band Played On together, you are bound to see a lot of disturbing connections. Order a copy of Osler's Web from Amazon and I guarantee that you'll have a hard time putting it down. I've read it multiple times, and even today I find things in it that make my head spin. You know, the thing that made and the Band Played On, a bestseller, was a 60 Minutes piece on it. I think Oster's Web deserves the same treatment. 60 Minutes really needs to bring this catastrophic epidemic to the public's attention. I think every member of Congress should be sent a copy of the book and it should be mandatory reading at every medical school. In the interview, Hillary mentioned Nina Ostrom, the New York Natives reporter who covered chronic fatigue syndrome from 1988 to 1997. Nina's three books on chronic fatigue syndrome are also available on Amazon. If you want to know more about the virus HHV6, I recommend a book by former ABC News producer Nicholas Regish. It's called The Virus Within, and it's also on Amazon. I call HHV-6 the AIDS drama to Strain and the Fifty Shades of AIDS Virus. I cover HHV-6 developments at HHV-6 University Online, and I've been doing that since 2005. I hope you will support this podcast by purchasing a copy of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic Cover-Up, a bestseller at Amazon, at cfsbook.com. That's C-F-S is in Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Book you can also find all of my books at Charlesortlib.com. That's Charles O-R-T-L-E-B.com.